The Missouri, she's a mighty river. Away, rolling river. The red man's camp lies on her borders. Away, we're bound away across the wide. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we will be continuing our look at Herman Melville's novel, White Jacket, or World in a Man of War. So I wanted to take a minute first to talk a little bit about the title and how that relates to the themes of the book, because they become a little bit more apparent in the second half of this, of this novel. So the, the title specifically is, is White Jacket. Now that refers to the white jacket that our narrator wears. Now he's not really clearly distinguishable from Herman Melville himself in, in this particular novel. It's, it's probably the one that comes off the most autobiographical. Even Taipei and Omu, which have those autobiographical elements, are, you know, the character has a name. There are clearly elements of it that are fictionalized. This one is just almost reads like a journalistic, you know, account, a reportage account of, of, of life on a on a naval American naval vessel. You know, if someone had like uh, Richard Henry Dana just signed up for the purposes of learning about it and then and then reported on it, you wouldn't be really be able to tell. But one element that does seem to be more fictionalized has to do with uh, the white jacket that the main character wears, which sets them apart from the rest of the crew. It causes a lot of problems. It seems to be almost a cursed jacket. And uh, like a very thin subplot that runs throughout this novel is the fate of this white jacket. Of course, he can't get rid of it because he doesn't have any other jackets. And, um, and the misery it causes him is, is part of the story. So that's the main title. But the subtitle is really important here. And that subtitle is Or the World in a Man of War. So the, you can just read this literally to say, you know, what the world's like, what's life like in a man of war, right? But he, he doesn't say life in a man of war, right? And I think in a previous episode, I may have actually made that slip and called it life in a man of war. But no, it's, it's really important to stress that it's, it's the world in a man of war. And Melville's point really here is to look at the naval ship as a microcosm of our own life, right? The fact that you have hierarchies, the fact that there's brutal violence, the fact that laws are arbitrary, the fact that you have competent people and incompetent people living and working together. The fact that you have people struggling for little moments of leisure and happiness. You know, the fact that that kind of we're all in this together, right? The, the fact that life is a kind of a journey home. These are all themes that come up throughout the book. And, you know, Melville really seems to be at times less interested in actually what you know, what life is like in a naval vessel, but really what we have in common with the people on the naval vessel. I think he wants his readers to think about how their own life is reflected by these same issues, right? Whether they're working in a machine shop, a farm, you know, whether in the marketplace or whatever, that, that these same contradictions and hostilities and conflicts are there in, in people's everyday life. So in this episode, I'll cover the, the third part of the novel, the third hundred pages, covering roughly pages 48 to, or chapters 48 to page 68. Um, 
much of this section is still spent in the in Rio de Janeiro. Almost half the novel is spent with that ship after it passes Cape Horn, just hanging out in Rio de Janeiro before returning home. So it gives Melville here a chance just to talk about different aspects of, of life on the ship. And he, he flips between kind of the hierarchy and the different roles of people on the ships to slices of life kind of tales. And once in a while, there's a dramatic thing that happens. So in this, the dramatic thing that happens in this part of the novel is a man is shot uh, sort of by accident um, and then because he, he wanted liberty and he didn't get it and he was trying to leave the ship and he got shot and then the, the, like, the process by which the decision was made to amputate his leg that's the big kind of plot element in this part of the story um, but we also um, get these different you know things that happen along the way. White Jacket himself is almost flogged too. So flogging shows up throughout the whole novel, especially in the, the second part that we looked at last time and in the final part of the, the novel, Flogging again is a major part of that story. Uh, but really not much happens plot-wise. It's just, you know, there's, you know, there's just life in, in the, on this ship, people go on liberty and Melville just talks about what he sees. So, I don't know, I'll, I'll, I'll highlight what I think are some of the most interesting and important parts of, of this part of the story. So, um, right on chapter 48, we meet kind of the economic officer of the ship, the purser's steward. The purser, and then there's a purser's steward, and there's a postmaster too, and, and they're kind of the, the, the bankers of, of the ship. And if you want to look at this book as a metaphor for you know, broader life, then, then this is the financial institutions part of it. And they get the highest salary of anyone on the ship. You know, they, they control the money, of course. And they also run the whole economy of the ship, whether there's buying and selling going on, whether sailors need advances on their salary, they can get it through, through him. So they're a bit of usurers, to be certain. And they also kind of run just the, the financial aspects of, of the ship. They also run a sort of currency because they have like the ship's... Um, notes that can be passed around for a bit of a currency on the ship it can be loans and stuff like that but you know they this is a lot of space for corruption in this particular role on the ship now in chapter 49 we were given this very very interesting examination I, I think it's one of the more powerful elements of this section of the novel and that is about rumors of war and this is this novel is set during the crisis over the Oregon porters if you remember from your your you know, high school history class, you know, of course, the United States fought a war in 1812 over a variety of things, impressment and British forts in the, in the West, and also the Napoleonic Wars were part of that conflict. Yet tensions remain between the United States and Britain from decades after that, often over the border with Canada, and, and where it really reached the flashpoint was with, with, um, with Oregon. In fact, the president, the, the Polk, President Polk, the one who initiated the Mexican War, he promised to go to war with Britain if they didn't get, you know, the border they wanted. Now, it ends up being resolved with a, with a negotiation that gives us the present border between Washington and British Columbia. Yet at the time, there was still talk of war. And what war meant for the sailors and what it meant for the officers is shown here as totally bifurcated and how the sailors were worried and anxious and, and fearful of war, it's something they, they did not want at all. Yet the captains, although they were also, or the captains and officers, although they were also at risk of, their, of life and limb by you know, going to war, they had an opportunity for upward mobility. They had an opportunity for fame. They had an opportunity to, to make something of themselves in their career through war, which is something sailors did not have. 
Quote, the hostile contrast between the feelings with which the common seamen and the officers of the Never Sink looked forward to this more than possible war is one of the many instances that might be quoted to show the antagonism of the interesting, curable antagonism with which they dwell. But can men whose interests are diverse ever hope to live together in a harmony uncoerced? Can a brotherhood of the race or mankind ever hope to prevail in a man of war, where one man's bane is another man's blessing? By abolishing the scourge, shall we do away tyranny, that tyranny which must ever prevail, where the two essentially antagonistic classes in perpetual contact, one is immeasurably the stronger? Surely it seems all but impossible. And as the one object of the man of war, as its name implies, is to fight the very battle so naturally adverse to the seaman, so long as the man of war exists, it must ever remain a picture of much that is tyrannical and repelling in human nature. So there it is. That's it. The, the, even the institution itself is con, you know, contradictory in the sense that the vast majority of the people on the ship don't want to perform its stated purpose, which is to engage in war. And the only way war can be engaged is through coercion and, and force. So the ship is stuck in Rio de Janeiro. We get a little bit on the beauty of, of the bay, which is a nice aside, where we get the physical geography of the play, something that Mildred didn't focus much on in this particular novel, unlike he does in like Taipei and Omu. We get these beautiful scenes of what the natural environment's like. Um, next we have like basically a petition to the captain, or the commodore, in fact. And there's there's the captain of the ship at the commodore. He's you know, just he's above the captain, but he doesn't do that much. But he's the one they go to in basically to ask for Liberty Day. And the person they send to do that is Jack Chase. Jack Chase is a, I think he's a bosun's mate. You know, he's enlisted, but he's higher rank, but he's also well respected by the crew. He's, he's got a lot of experience. He's seen as honorable all around. He, Melville, he always comes back to how this is like the good model of, of, of the ideal sailor. And he's the one who has to go to the Commodore and then ask for liberty for the men on shore. And he's very political. He's very polite. He uses a lot of flattering talks. And he's eventually successful. And it, and it shows you that these hierarchies can be talked with, you know, by, by certain types of people who, who know how to do this, that they can be negotiated. That's not entirely brutal. I mean, that's the focus of much of the novel, of course, is the ultimate brutality and arbitrariness of, of power on board the ship. But there are spaces of, of, of cooperation and negotiation. And, and, you know, they don't have a union. They don't have formal institutions to do this. So by putting up someone like Jack Chase to speak on behalf of the crew with the Commodore, you know, they, they reach them some, some success. So th then they're going to go off to Liberty Day. And there's going to be a few chapters and some other consequences of this, of this Liberty Day. But... Melville goes into the role of the midshipman in some detail. Like I said, he's always flipping between like the role of certain people on the ship and then like something happens and then he goes back to talking about some other um, person. And sometimes they're connected for a reason. Like before there's an amputation, he talks about the surgeon and, and the surgeon's role. But the midshipmen are, are interesting. Um, firstly, they have some power. Melville talks about the midshipmen as... as you know, able to flog a sailor due to a complaint made by a midshipman. Right? If they if they report up that a sailor's done something wrong or or whatever, they can be flogged. So they have significant power there, but they're very capricious and they they have kind of an ambiguous place in the overall chain of command on the ship. And he certainly doesn't seem to like them. Quote, however childish, ignorant, stupid, or idiotic a midshipman is, if he but orders a sailor to perform even the most absurd action, that man is not only bound to render instant and unanswering obedience, but he would refuse, refuse at his own peril. 
And if having obeyed, he should then complain to the captain, and the captain in his own mind should be thoroughly convinced of the impropriety, perhaps the illegality of the order, yet in nine cases out of ten he would not publicly reprimand the midshipman, nor take the slightest token admit before that the complainant that in this particular thing the midshipman had done otherwise a perfect right. I mean, wow, how can you read that and not think of uh, like a TV show like The Wire, which emphasizes how you know, people defend their institutions, right? People will defend their own people even when they do wrong. And yeah, like the hierarchy flows downward and the people on the bottom take the weight for the, but the wrongs of the, on the top. But there's still a tendency to protect the institution that you work for. And that's a major theme of that TV show. And here Melville seems to talk about that as, as well. But the midshipmen comes off essentially as, as petty, petty tyrants who, who kind of come up in in different ways they're not the classical officer they're not fully enlisted men so they have this ambiguous place in it but they come out of it as petty tyrants and it's not a very flattering image of of the midshipmen to be sure so before getting into liberty day part of the reason this liberty is so important is discussed and that's just the tendency of sailors on these long voyages to get depressed and the, the effect that has on the overall ship as a whole you know, I, I kind of wish I, we could get a little bit more on the psychological impact of being on the ship or even of flogging. For the, he hints about that a little bit, but, you know, it's Melville's not really a, a trained psychiatrist, so he's not a psychologist. So I don't know how much of this stuff is on his mind, but the overall malaise of, of a lot of the sailors aboard the ship make things like Liberty necessary. And that's what happens in chapters in chapter 54, um, where he'd start to describe this day where, where the whole ship essentially can go off to, to, to the port and enjoy life for a little bit. The chapter is called, The People Are Given Liberty. And he puts quotes around the people and liberty. So the suggestion is that, you know, they're not the people and the, I guess in the, the way the American political thought contrives with the people and liberty, it's not true liberty, I guess. It is, it's all quoted here. Um, one thing we learn here is that there are very different class expectations for for people on on Liberty and what they do and what act what kind of access they have. This kind of reminds us a little bit of what we learned in Redburn and that Liberty for and there there was like a Liberty Month because it was just that while they're the stevedores were working on the ship and they were waiting for cargo and stuff they didn't really have much to do so they just hung out on the, the dock here it's a military institution so they're given a formal liberty day but the, the common sailors are taken advantage of and there's all kind of temptations for drink and women and spending money there and you can't help but go back at the midshipmen who kind of act like some of the worst stereotypes of the drunken sailor in port despite having positions of authority on the ship. But a big theme here is just the diverging class experiences of sailors um, during, during Liberty Day. Again and again, you, you reminded that this is a book about class, and it's about class not just on a ship, but, but across society as a whole. Um, so like leisure, the different way people participate in leisure activities is, is true. I mean, it's a class-based experience largely. Um, anyways, um, 55 gets us, chapter 55 gets us back to the midshipmen. And so, yeah, he spends three or four chapters are picking on these guys. He, 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 he thinks their, their reason for their, their failings as officers and as people in authority on these ships go to like their origins and their roots. So it's kind of, 
they're grown into them from, from a young age, partially because they're often recruited quite early and they started out very young in the Navy. Quote, midshipmen are sent into the Navy at a very early age, are exposed to the passive reception of all the prejudices of the quarterdeck in favor of ancient usages, however useless or pernicious. These prejudices grow up with them and solidify with the very bones. As they rise in rank, they naturally carry with them whence the inveterate repugnance of many commodores and captains to the slightest innovations in the service, however salutary they may appear to the landsmen. So it, it kind of leads, the point here being it, it leads to a kind of conservatism in, in the ship and in the way the ship is run. And, and you know, he's going to get more into this later on in the novel too when he looks at actually the rules, the laws at sea and how, you know, it's simply a product of of, of traditions that go back like way back to the British Navy of the 17th century and the Americans have inherited a lot of this and, and things don't really change that much so this is kind of our window into the broader theme of, of, of tradition um, so we get a little side story where the uh, Don Pedro the second emperor uh, visits the emperor I guess of Brazil I have to look up Brazilian political political history I think at this point Brazil was still under the Portuguese rule, maybe they had their own emperor. All right, I just went and looked it up. Um, so Pedro II of Brazil was emperor of Brazil from 1825 to, to 1891, very long time. So that would have been when he would have oversaw the... No, he was born in 1825, cor coronation in 1841. So he would have been emperor when, when slavery was abolished in Brazil. The empire of Brazil overall ran from 1822... Uh, to to 1889, so more or less consistent with his his reign. So yeah, I, I don't really know this history, but there it is. Brazil was an empire at the time. So he visits for a time, and and we just get more pomp and more. Well, it's more of a chance for the high officers to show off and wear their epaulets and 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 you know be all pompous and, and arrogant aboard the ship. There's a lot of that in this novel. A lot of just like the kind of the exaggerated grandioseness of, of, of the ship and, you know, them being a representative of the American Navy, of course, the emperor, you know, is engaged in a little bit of diplomacy here. Chapters 58 and 59 tell a very, very fascinating story that I love. It, it's, it's a couple of my favorite chapters in this book. What happens in these chapters is a well, while in Rio de Janeiro, they, they take on some extra sailors from another American ship because of, you know, replace losses or whatever. This is commonly done. So just transferring some people over to the ship. One of these is a former officer who has fallen, and now he's a common seaman. So for whatever reason, I, I think the details are given, but he, he's fallen in rank, and he's become a common seaman. And he's very, very ashamed of this and very self-conscious about this. And even the captain knows him and is able to talk to him and say, I can't treat you with any, you know, the same, I have to treat you the same way I treat all my other sailors. I can't give you special treatment. And, and he seems to know that. But the, the fact that he was a former officer doesn't get him very far. But what's more bothersome to him is what was revealed in the next chapter. And that is an, a, a, a ship is coming soon. Uh, I think it's some kind of supply ship or something that has his brother who is still an officer. And he hasn't told his brother yet that he's fallen in rank and he's very, very ashamed of this and he doesn't want to meet his brother. And he, he sits down with a white jacket and begs for advice on what to do about this. He even thinks about like deserting rather than be soft seen as a common seaman in front of his 
brother who he loves very much and has a lot of respect for. White Jacket says, don't worry, he's your brother. He'll still love you. But he can't get over the shame of having fallen in rank. Um, and then and he decides not to see his brother. So the, it's, it, we're told that despite that ship coming, he never actually does see his brother. So it's kind of a sad story of how rank gets in the way of, of two brothers. In fact, that's what Melville calls the chapter. He calls it button. A button divides two brothers. And the button being just the, the just rank, the symbol of rank, is all that takes to divide them. And, you know, this is true to life, I think, in, in broader society. People who had were known and respected by the family because of their status or their rank, they face some kind of decline. They're, they're too ashamed to go back home. You know, you know, a lot of homeless people, they have family and think, but they're just too ashamed to perhaps go and, and seek out help from their from their family. So that, that seemed true to life to me and, and something that we see often enough in, 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 in life. So with chapter 60, we get to a really kind of one of the major sub-stories in this part of the novel, which is about the amputation of, of a leg. Essentially, uh, one man, for whatever reason, he was being punished. He's not allowed to go on liberty. Uh, he does try to escape, though, and get to a, a boat so he can get to get to liberty, get shot. And, and he survives the shot, but of course, in those days, it's the 19th century. And if you know, remember your Civil War history, getting shot was not good for the fate of your limb if you got shot there. So he's, you know, trying to get to liberty for this. He's, he's basically punished by being, being shot. And, and then the question becomes in the future chapters, what is to be done about this guy's leg? So we're introduced to the surgeon of the fleet. His name is Cadwalder Cuticle. And, and we meet him a few times in, in the story because he'll be a major, he'll be in major importance in the last part of the novel as well. But here his, we get a kind of a pretty long description of the character of this guy, Cuticle. He's a bit of a contradictory figure. He seems to have some, uh, he's very professional. He's very much a, a, a kind of doctor. So he's got some refinement and education and, and the crew members respect him for that. At the same time, though, he, he kind of has this aloofness with his subjects. He, he tends to want to treat human beings as experiments. There's a bit of morbidness to him as well that, that Melville's kind of fascinated by. So we get this long description of, of, of him. And, and despite being clear, like kind of clear headed most of the time, he, he could fall into these weird kind of rages and, and anxieties and things. Let me read this, this passage. Like it's a little bit into just kind of the morbidness of, of life in the ship's surgeon's room. Quote, but though like all other mortals, Cuticle was subject at times to these fits of passion, at least under outrageous provocation, nothing could exceed his coolness when actually employed in an eminent vocation. Surrounded by moans and shrieks, by features distorted with anguish inflicted on himself, he yet maintained a countenance almost supernaturally calm. And unless the intense interest in the operation flushed his wan face with a momentary tinge of professional enthusiasm, he toiled away untouched by the keenest misery coming under the fleet surgeon's eyes. Indeed, long amputation to the dissecting room and the amputation table had made him seemingly impervious to the ordinary emotions of humanity. You could not say that Cuticle was essentially a cruel-hearted man. His apparent heartlessness must have been of a purely scientific origin. If he had not, if it is not to be imagined that even the that cuticle would have harmed a fly unless he could procure a microscope powerful enough to assist him in experimenting on the minute vitals of the creature. But notwithstanding his marvelous indifference to the suffering of his patients, in spite even of his enthusiasm in his vocation, not cooled by frosting oldage itself, cuticle on some occasions would certainly 
affect a certain disrelish of his profession and disclaim against the necessity that forced a man of his humanity to perform a surgical operation. Uh, end quote. So he's a very complex figure. Um, and you can imagine the pressure and the, the struggle that a, a surgeon, especially during wartime, would, would, have, would have to face. And, you know, it, it kind of makes me think maybe we need to actually study more the, the Civil War doctors who had to cut off dozens and dozens of them every day and, and what kind of people these were and, and, and what they went through. Um, so this is fo- introducing to cuticle. This is followed by the consultation of the surgeons where the other ships of the fleet that are in Rio, they all, they all send their surgeons and there's a fleet surgeon too who oversees this all. And they get together and they, they actually all look at the patient. They look, they look at his case file and they, they make their recommendations. And cuticle's opinion is you need to amputate this leg. It's going to lose it. You've got to save his life by amputating the leg. The others, though, give one person, one or two people say, maybe we can hold out and wait a while. Um, the younger, younger person who seems to have some doubts ends up going along with cuticle. So eventually the decision is made collectively to, to amputate the leg, despite the fact that there seems to be some doubt. So I think Melville wants to say that this might end up being a bit of an arbitrary decision and not truly based on the best medical practice. And there may have been ways to save the leg, but the, the conservative approach won out and the decision was made to amputate the leg. And then we get in chapter 63, a very long description of, of this operation. It's a very, very group, gruesome scene. It's also very public because it's, it's on a ship with 500 people. So people see it, they hear it, they, they know what's going on. There's not much privacy. And it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, a, a significant moment in the novel where we get this very long description of, of, of the surgery, which seems to have not taken a lot of time. These, these amputations tended to be quick, but still, Belleville really gets into the detail of of the description. And as you might expect, the patient dies at the end of the scene. So after all of that, uh, the patient patient dies and then they very briefly have a funeral. Now Melville doesn't use this to get into the funeral story, the because he's going to do that in a later chapter. And, and he's, there's going to be another person who dies who is going to have the full, we're going to get the full story of a funeral in a future chapter. There's a really nice chapter in the section two called A Man of War Race, where um, I think it's, 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 is it Mad Jack? I think it's Mad Jack is, is talking about like the history of sailors and the, like the literary contribution of sailors throughout history. And he talks about like the Tempest in Shakespeare's first chapter in, Temp- in The Tempest first scene in The Tempest and how this must prove that he must have been a sailor. Homer was a sailor, right? And we see this in Ulysses or the Odyssey. Um, no, it can't be. It can't, it's sorry. It's not Mad Jack. It's Jack Chase, the good sailor, the one who reads, reads literature, right? But he goes into this uh, long speech essentially on, on the contribution of sailors to world literature. And it's, it's a really nice moment. And you can tell that, that Melville was having fun in, in f- fleshing this all out. Byron, a sailor, a lot of others too. Um, chapter 66 is about fun on a man of war, which is about different ways that sailors amuse themselves. But this is presented as something that is kind of granted under the kind of the benevolence of the captain. Because at any point, the, the officers can come in and stop this merrymaking that they're having but there, there's some interesting racial stuff in the games they play too like one game they play is where they have two of the black crew members kind of wrestle um 
So, but at the end of the day, that can be stopped at any moment by the by the captain. So, as in all things, the hierarchy wins out, even at in in fun. And that'll be something we'll come back to when we talk about smoking right at the end of the novel. So, the the final things I want to talk about today is a, is a short scene in which White Jacket almost is flogged, and and we've already seen the threat of flogging and what it means for characters, what it means for sailors on these ships, and the, the psychological impact, the, the terror it induces, and all that. And White Jacket was, he was called up to be flogged, essentially. He, he, and he didn't know why. He didn't really understand why. And he finds out later on that the reason he's going to be flogged is he missed his post. And he, he didn't know his post. It was, he was a completely innocent mistake for you know, he, these posts changed. There's a lot of people on the ship. There was a miscommunication. He didn't know he was supposed to be posted. And, you know, he was basically on the deck ready to be flogged. And he goes into this intense terror when, when, seeing that, when hearing this. Now, he ends up being saved, though. He ends up being saved by Jack Chase and I think someone else, a few other members say, no, White Jacket, he, he wouldn't miss the post. I mean, he's not that kind of person, so you got to let him go. And then the captain does let him go. So he nearly evades being um, flogged. He's essentially arraigned and tried and declared not guilty by the captain in just a few minutes. Now, we get a, philosoph a philosophical point that that Melville will come back to in Moby Dick, and it's here throughout a lot, too. It's like the power of, of, the, of the strong, noble honorable man compared to someone who who has power based on their position and authority there there's a line in moby dick um, where melville it's like it's in the town hall story where he says you know when a superior when a, when a man in a position of authority sees a superior man who might be under him in formal rank but is his better in all things when that happens when those two people meet the one who has the superior position by law must grind down and crush the other one, right? Or face the fact that his own position is is a lie, essentially. And that is hinted at here, too. You can tell it was on his mind this early. Quote, Captain Claret looked from Chase to Colebrook and from Colebrook to Chase, one of the foremost men on the seamen, of the seamen and among the foremost men among the soldiers, then all around upon the packed and silent crew, and as if slave to fate, the supreme captain of a frigate, he turned to the first lieutenant, made some indifferent remark, and saying to me, you may go, sauntered aft to his cabin, while I, who in my depression in my soul, had but just escaped being a murderer and a suicide, almost burst into tears of thanksgiving where I stood. Yeah. So, yeah, White Jacket was thinking about things he could do to avoid being flogged. So, again, the terror of being flogged is very, very real. Melville doesn't want us to forget this. So his, the character he creates here thinks about, like, jumping over de over ship, maybe risk dying rather than be flogged. He talks about I think maybe even kill someone to get away. I mean, he was, he was that desperate not to be flogged. But he gets away thanks to um, some of his uh, co-workers, his, his fellow seamen. So I guess that's it. That takes us pretty much to, to the end, to the end of chapter 68. There's a few other things, but not that important. So in the next episode, I'll finish up with White Jacket. And that will cover chapters 69 through 93. And then there's like a, a conclusion, which is really interesting. And, and you should read. If you read nothing else, read that conclusion. And you can kind of get the main heart of, of what Melville's trying to do in this, this book. So um, that 
that does it, I guess, for this particular episode. If, if you read this section of White Jacket and you have your own thoughts about it, please leave them below and I'll try to comment or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. That, frankly, is the best way to, to reach me. I, I don't get notices if people make um, like Facebook comments on my, on my posts. So try to send me an email. Um, but next time we'll finish up with White Jacket and this will, then we can move on with, with Moby Dick. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. At last there came a Yankee skipper away, you rolling river. He winked his eye and he dipped his flipper.